you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. There have been a few times in my life where I really wish I had one of those, one of those epic movie trailer voices. You know what I'm talking about? Coming soon to a theater near you. You know, the, the, the multimedia event of a lifetime. You know, that, that, that great narrator voice that just communicates this epicness of what's about to unfold, this, this visual spectacle that's about to come across your screen. The Lord has not blessed me in that way, and that's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm over that, right? But if there ever was a time to have such a voice like that, it would be for looking into a passage like Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 contains what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because it takes place on the Mount of Olives or Mount Olivet. The Olivet Discourse has been a source of, of much discussion much debate, much controversy, uh, lots of people disagreeing about how we should understand the, the various details that are here, lots of books that have been written, debates that have been held over how we ought to understand this particular text. Well, in God's providence, we are studying the book of Mark, and Mark is interesting when it comes to studying the Olivet Discourse because it is often overlooked in the study of the text, of, of this portion of Jesus' ministry. A lot of times when people begin to study the Olivet Discourse, they're going to hone in on Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, or they're going to come over to, to the book of Luke and look at Luke chapter 21 and, and look at the Olivet Discourse as, as it is presented there. And sure, Mark may get a nod here and there in terms of cross-referencing and such, but it doesn't tend to be the primary text that individuals look to when studying the Olivet Discourse. Now, there are reasons for this. One reason is that Mark is the shortest of the accounts of the Olivet Discourse. In fact, sometimes it's called the Little Apocalypse because it's just so condensed, it's so small, it's so much shorter than the other accounts. Secondly, there's little that is in Mark's account that doesn't also appear in either Matthew or Luke. And then finally, Mark's account has some additional ambiguity in the text, in the flow of the discourse, than what Matthew or Luke would present. And so when you consider those different things, people might say, well, if you really want to know what's going on with the Olivet Discourse, if you really want to have a, a full picture of the entirety of what Jesus communicated on Mount Olivet, well, then you really need to go to Matthew or you really need to go to Luke. That's where you need to go. And so as a result, Mark kind of becomes that that forgotten middle child in the midst of things, where it's just like, oh, it's just not as focused right there. Well, we do not want to forget Mark. Of course, we're studying this book of Mark. We, we, we're studying this book of Mark, and so we want to know what Mark has to say. We want to know what Mark has communicated. And I just want to pause at that point for a moment and, and ask us to consider this question. Have you ever wondered why we have four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We got four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. Three of those Gospels have so much overlap that they have their own nickname as a set. They are called the Synoptic Gospels because they parallel one another so, so much. And there have been books that have been published that try to harmonize and blend the Gospels into one account and, and try to give us the full picture of what's going on in the life of Jesus' ministry. And yet, 
we weren't given one account. We were given four. Why is that the case? Well, I think it's worth remembering that as we study these Gospels, as we look at the different texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we want to remember that Matthew is Matthew, Mark is Mark, Luke is Luke, John is John. Like, these are individual books. We have four Gospels because each Gospel writer had their own unique audience. Each Gospel writer had their own unique purposes for writing and their own goals, their own intents for what they desired to accomplish with their writing. They had different emphases with the truth that they are communicating. And so the Holy Spirit was at work in each gospel writer such that we have true and non-contradictory accounts of the life of Christ, and yet different focuses, different emphases, different purposes in writing for each gospel writer. And it's important for us to remember that as we start to consider texts particularly like the Olivet Discourse as we look at Mark chapter 13. I'm going to get into this more momentarily, but there is a temptation when studying the Gospels and especially with the Olivet Discourse that we would we would do a comparison with what Mark says, with what Luke and, and Matthew say, and I do think there is some value in that. There is some, some good things that we can learn and glean by comparing the different Gospels together. But there is a temptation for us to take what we see communicated in Matthew or what we see communicated in Luke and try to import that meaning into Mark or try to lay those other Gospels on top of Mark and look at Mark through the lens of either Matthew or or Luke. And when we do that, we run the risk of missing the point of what Mark was trying to communicate, because all we can see is Matthew, or all we can see is Luke. But if we acknowledge this reality that each gospel writer had a different purpose in writing, we will miss the purpose of Mark if we do that, if we lay those other Gospels on top. And so, we do not want to do that. Someday, by God's grace, we will study Matthew, and we will study Luke, and we'll get into seeing what their emphases were and what their purposes were. I pray that that will happen at some point in the future. But here, today, we want to study Mark. We want to begin this journey through Mark chapter 13 and look at what Mark's emphases are. What, what is Mark trying to communicate as he writes? Today's sermon is, is going to be a little bit different from most sermons. Most sermons, we're, we're diving right into the text and we're, we're starting to break it down and look through the structure of the text and see what the gospel writer is communicating. Today, because of the nature of what Mark 13 teaches and what it's about, I want to begin by providing for us some theological and methodological background and context that will help us study this text. And so, for some of us, that's an exciting thing to talk about. For other of us, that's just like, oh no, it's going to be one of these sermons. Please bear with me. Uh, what this, this is important information that's really going to help us if we're going to understand Mark 13 rightly and we want to know what Mark communicates, this is going to be helpful information for us as we work through some of these theological and methodological things that, that again, may not always be the most exciting things to think about. They are important things for us to think about. 
And so I, I, I want to begin with, with looking at some theological, methodological context, and then we will get to an overview of, the, of, of Mark chapter 13, but let's begin with this, with this overview of some theological and methodological considerations. First, some theological and methodological context. The Olivet Discourse is a discourse that contains information about the end times, about what happens at the end of the age. It contains some of Jesus' prophecies about the end of the age and His second coming, and then some things that will happen in between. And so, of course, everyone in the world all agrees about how everything is going to unfold with the end times, right? There's no controversy about these things whatsoever, right? Not exactly, right? There are disagreements about these things. And so as we think about so the theology, the methodology, as we approach this text, a few things that I'd like us to keep in mind. First, there are disagreements within Christianity about how Mark 13 should be interpreted and understood. They exist. Those conversations exist. Second, these disagreements exist because people have different methodologies for how they approach understanding the Bible. How should we read the Scripture? How should we understand it? What's our method of interpretation? The big word for this is hermeneutics. What is our method of interpretation? And so you will have to forgive me, I am going to get just a little bit technical today. I try not to get overly technical in the majority of my sermons, but sometimes it's just really helpful to think about things in this way. And so for today, just have to bear with me a little bit as I wade through some of these technical details because this sets the stage for us. This provides the foundation for us for why we are going to conclude the things we are going to conclude about the text. We here at Pillar Fellowship embrace a method of understanding Scripture that is called the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Sometimes it's called a literal approach to the Scriptures. What that means is we seek to, to understand what the author intended to communicate when he wrote the words of Scripture. This methodology helps us seek what is called the authorial intent. What did the original author intend his readers to understand? And so whenever I'm studying a text to preach or whenever I'm just studying a text just on my own for my own personal edification and study, the number one goal always has to be before I get to anything about how this text applies to me, before I get to anything about what this text means in our modern context, before we understand any of that, the number one goal has to be what did the original author intend to communicate? What does he want us to understand? What did the text mean in the mind of the original author, and what did he want to communicate to his audience? It is only when we understand that that we can begin to bridge the gap between the original meaning that, that the author had to understanding the application for us in our modern context a text can never mean what it never meant, and so we must first understand what it meant in its context before we can make our applications to today. And so that has to be the focus, that has to be the goal. 
Well, coupled with that approach, coupled with that understanding is, is a principle called the principle of progressive revelation. Now, we don't want to get scared off by the word progressive. It has nothing to do with how we, the word progressive gets thrown around in modern context today. That's, it's not about that. The principle of progressive revelation simply acknowledges that we didn't receive all of the Scriptures all at once. God didn't give us a complete Bible completely written cover to cover, and here's the Bible and here's the whole book. God didn't reveal that, His Scripture to us in that way. It, w- it was revealed progressively over time to different people in different contexts, and over time we ended up with what is now the complete canon of Scripture. We have it all now, but it took time to develop. God's revelation was revealed progressively over time. Embracing that principle does have an effect for how we understand Scripture. And here is a very important distinction when it comes to how we approach Scripture, understanding that principle. There are some Christians who take the New Testament and they see and they begin with the New Testament. They see details that are there, perhaps about the church, perhaps about things that God is going to do, and they take that information and they try to read it backwards into the Old Testament and say, well, maybe this is talking about, in a spiritual way, the church that's, that we're reading about in the New Testament, and so they're, they're reading the New Testament backwards into the Old Testament and saying, oh, hey, these promises that we see here, that's fulfilled spiritually in the church today. Well, we do not follow that methodology. Embracing the principle of progressive revelation means that that we start with the earlier revelation. We begin with what God has said in the Old Testament. We establish what did the original author mean when he wrote that book then and there, and that meaning is fixed. That meaning doesn't change. That meaning doesn't develop. Our understanding of the significance of that meaning may grow as we understand more things through continuing to study revelation, but the meaning itself is fixed. And when we understand that, that has an impact for how we understand things and study of the end times. And that's, that's part of why I'm getting to all this, is because we are about to study a text about what's called eschatology, a study of end times, a study of the last things. Because what we believe about the end times is a result of the methodological things that I just communicated. That literal approach to hermeneutics, to interpretation, that grammatical historical approach, understanding what the original author was trying to communicate in his context, that leads us to our conclusions about what we believe about the end times. Just a few more things. We're almost done with the, with the technical stuff, all right? Just bear with me a little bit longer. Here at Pillar Fellowship, we believe and teach what is called premillennial eschatology. Premillennial eschatology. Here, in fact, here's our, our doctrinal statement on these things. We believe in the second advent of Christ. We believe that the blessed hope, the personal, imminent, pre-tribulation, and premillennial coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for His redeemed ones, 
and in his subsequent return to earth with his saints to establish his millennial kingdom. Premillennial eschatology. That word eschatology means the study of the last things or the study of the end times. We unapologetically embrace and believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. We believe that Jesus Christ is going to catch up His church to meet the Lord in the air, as we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Before God brings about the, the tribulation, the great tribulation, seven-year judgment upon the earth. And we believe in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ, which means we believe that He is going to return to earth after the tribulation period, but before the kingdom is established, hence premillennial, premillennium kingdom. The word millennium means 1,000. We believe Jesus Christ will reign physically on the earth for 1,000 years. Premillennial eschatology. And again, this is the result of our methodology, the result of our commitment to the method that we use when we study the Scripture. But as I mentioned, not every Christian agrees with this methodology or agrees with this conclusion. There are some Christians who embrace what is called amillennialism, which means that they don't believe in a literal physical kingdom. They believe that the prophecies that speak about the kingdom of Christ, they believe that those are using metaphorical or spiritual language. They do not believe in a, in a physical kingdom that lasts a, a, a uh, definite amount of time. They believe that yeah, Christ is ruling and reigning spiritually in His people, and that the prophecies about Christ ruling and reigning physically, that those are metaphorical. Those are, they, they spiritualize the language there to understand uh, those texts. And so, the return of Christ is not in relation to the kingdom. It is only the only prophetic event that remains for those who embrace this uh, theology is that He will return and usher in the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's it. And finally, there are some who affirm what is called post-millennialism, which means that they believe that Jesus is going to come back after the, the millennial kingdom. So those who embrace this idea teach that it is our responsibility as Christians to build the kingdom now, and that when Jesus returns, we will turn the kingdom over to Jesus Christ for him to receive at that time, and will rule under his reign for the rest of eternity. And so we have these different systems: premillennialism, Christ returns before the establishment of the kingdom. That's what we believe. Amillennialism, there is no literal kingdom; the kingdom is spiritual and metaphorical. And postmillennialism, Christ returns after the establishment of the kingdom. In the history of the church, premillennialism was the, the dominant view, right up until the time uh, there was a man named uh, Augustine, or Augustine, as some people say. Uh, he popularized a form of amillennialism. But you need to know that in recent years, postmillennialism has become increasingly and increasingly more and more popular in different circles. And those who adhere to a postmillennial viewpoint that think it's our responsibility to build the kingdom now, uh, they're becoming more and more vocal and active. And so this is an ongoing discussion. There are ongoing debates that happen about these things. This isn't something that's like, well, you know, maybe this was a discussion in, in history and it has no relevance to us. No, you, 
If you're having conversations with other believers that have different convictions about things, you will encounter these discussions. This is something that, that exists within Christianity. So what I want to equip us with right now, before we get into Mark 13, what I want to equip us with is, is how we need to think about the fact that there are these differences. How do we think about this? Well, first and foremost, we are convictionally premillennial, as I have said. That is what we believe. But we need to recognize and we need to affirm that the people who believe these other views they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. They love the Lord, they love His Word, and they want to understand it rightly. And so we consider that these different eschatological views, this discussion, we, we believe this to be of secondary importance to things like the gospel of Christ. So we would say that things like the gospel message or the nature of the Trinity, biblical morality, things of that nature, we would say, hey, those things, there's no room for disagreement on those things and for you still to be called a Christian. Those are primary issues. We cannot afford to disagree on those things. But when it comes to eschatology discussions, the majority of those discussions there have been countless men and women over the years who hold to a different position to us on these matters, and they are godly saints. They love the Word of God. They love the Lord, and they want to understand His Word rightly, and they want to help other people understand the Word rightly, and yet they have a disagreement in these things. We want to be able to have these conversations with others who disagree with us with humility and with grace as we seek to try to understand the Scriptures. These people who hold the different positions, they aren't evil for holding different positions. They are understanding the Scriptures differently. Second that we need to embrace and make sure we are understanding is even though we do view this as a, of secondary importance to things of the gospel, these things are still important. <laughs> We, we, don't, we don't minimize the importance of eschatology. You know, there, there are some churches and there are some groups out there that, that just try to ignore anything about the end times, ignoring what God has revealed because, wow, there's just so many discussions about that and it, we just don't want to get into arguments about it. But this is truth that God has revealed. God has communicated truth for us about things that He intends to do, and for us to just ignore that because we're afraid of the conversation, that is not an appropriate stance for us to take. These things matter. These things impact how we live our lives here and now. And so we do not have the freedom to say that, oh, because these things are secondary, they don't matter. No, they matter. They really do matter. These things are important. And so while we would not say that, that those who hold to these different positions, we would not say that they are heretics. We would not say that they are in heresy. But we would say that they are in error. We would say that they're not understanding the Scriptures rightly in these things because it goes against what we believe the Bible teaches and we want to understand the Bible rightly and we want to help other people understand the Bible rightly. And so, though we recognize that we will share eternity with individuals who will differ from us on these issues, I still believe we will give an account to the Lord for how we steward His Word. 
So we want to do our due diligence to make sure we're understanding the text correctly. And someday in glory, maybe we'll get to tease them about, hey, we were right all along. <laughs> Probably not. We'll, have, we'll, be more, more, we'll be sanctified beyond that, I believe. But it's fun to think about. So I jest, but I say that because I do want us to maintain a balance for how we approach these discussions. On the one hand, we want to make sure we do recognizing that others who differ on this are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. On the other hand, we still want to say that these things matter, and we don't want to not talk about these things, or we want to embrace what God has revealed. We want to be willing to be the noble Bereans, opening the Scriptures to see if the things that we are hearing, the things that we are being taught, are these things actually so in accordance with the Word of God. But we approach it with humility. We approach it with grace. We approach conversations with others with patience, knowing that we all have to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Patience, humility, and grace. All right. So there's premillennial. That's what we believe. There's all millennialism. There's postmillennialism. This is important, and that's a, that is an incredibly brief survey of those positions. This is important for us as we think about how we understand Mark 13. As we study Mark 13, which is, contains some of Jesus' eschatology, the differing eschatological views will tend to impact how someone is going to interpret and understand the things that Jesus is going to say. There are places in the Olivet Discourse that would seem as though Jesus is speaking of a very near event, something that's very close that's about to happen. And if we look back historically, we would look at the date of A.D. 70, which is the fall of Jerusalem, when Rome came and destroyed the city, Emperor Titus came in, surrounded the city, destroyed everything, destroyed the temple, everything was laid, ba laid uh, bare, uh, the temple was burned to the ground, complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Then there are other portions of the Olivet Discourse that we would look at and say, you know, I don't think that's talking about AD 70. He seems to be talking about a, a further off event where, he, where he's talking about the return of Jesus Christ and, and things that will happen at the very end of the age that it, it just doesn't seem like it can fit with AD 70. And so we see these, these two different events that seem to be in view at different points of the gospel. And, and part of the thing that makes understanding the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 a little bit challenging is discerning which time is Jesus talking about AD 70 and when is He talking about the end of the age? How do we discern when He's talking about which time? And these different positions that people hold to has a, tends to have an impact upon that because as you study the Olivet Discourse, especially from the different gospel writers, it tends to lead one direction or another on these things. So, for example, those who hold to either an amillennial or a postmillennial viewpoint are more likely going to tend to see more of the discourse as referring to AD 70 and seeing fulfillment there. Whereas those who are more premillennial, such as us, will tend to see more of it as still future and referring to things like the great tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And when it comes to studying the Olivet Discourse, premillennialists tend to really like Matthew's accounts. They love Matthew because in Matthew there's different chronology that's laid out. There are time indicators that really makes it seem clear that Jesus is talking about a, a far-off future event. And so the premillennialists love Matthew. These other viewpoints, they tend to really lean into the Gospel of Luke. Because in the Gospel of Luke, there's a portion of the Olivet Discourse that seems very so clearly to be talking about A.D. 70 and the fall of Jerusalem. And as you read the book of Luke, and we'll get into this more in future weeks, so we'll have opportunity to kind of work through this on a, on a deeper level and see the comparison, the contrast and such. But they look at Luke and they see Jesus' words that really do seem to be indicating that He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And so they look at that and say, well, that must be more of what He's talking about. And so then when it comes to the book of Mark, the, the temptation is, again, I'm going to grab Matthew and my understanding of Matthew, and I'm going to make that be the grid for how I understand Mark. Or maybe I'm going to, I'm going to grab Luke, and I'm going to take that, and I'm going to overlay that upon Mark, and I'm going to let that be the lens and the grid through which I understand Mark. And as we've already discussed, we don't want to do that. We don't want to let these other gospel writers who had different purposes in their writing overrule Mark's purpose and what Mark wants to communicate and what Mark's emphases are in this text. We are not the masters of the text to tell the text what it needs to say. Right? We do not get to say, hey, this is my theological presupposition, therefore I'm going to force the text to say that. We do not have that freedom. We must be submitting ourselves to the Word of God, submitting ourselves to the text, and let it tell us what, it, what the Lord would have for us in Mark 13. Now, here we are, and I'm already a solid 30 minutes into this, talking about theological and methodological underpinnings and, and context and all these things, and we've not even really begun to open up Mark yet, and in so many ways, that's a shame. Like, I wish that we could have just, just jumped right into Mark, but because there's so much discussion, I felt it wise to equip us with this knowledge that we, as we approach walking through this text, that we would think rightly about these things and understand why there is so much discussion and why there's disagreement, and that will equip us for how we approach, how we will be understanding this text. So let's start considering Mark 13. My normal pattern for studying for a sermon is to first spend several read-throughs, reading through the text, reading through it within its context, repeating some of the passages that came before, the passages that come later, trying to understand it within its context. I try to outline the passage and try to see the flow of what's going on in the text, what, what direction is the narrative going, what's going on there. And then once I feel like I have a good handle on the structure and the form of what's going on there, I may do word studies on individual words and phrases to see how these things are being used, try to understand what's, what's the language of the text. And then I'll begin to open up different commentaries and see if they can shed additional light, maybe things that I've missed. Maybe there's things that, that, that I can sharpen and refine about how I think about the text. Maybe there's some applicational points that some commentaries can be very helpful with providing. 
Well, as I was studying for this text, as I'm working through the different commentaries, and nearly every commentary I'm reading spends significant time talking about how complicated this text is and all the complexities of the text. They note that there's these different positions that different authors have. One author said that this text is fraught with what he called puzzling exegetical problems. And another preacher that I was hearing, he said that that he was quoting that particular author and saying that was a gross understatement, and it's really more of an exegetical minefield that we would just do the best that we can to try to extract ourselves from as quickly and as safely as possible so we don't blow up on the discussion. I just have to challenge the thinking on that point a little bit. Is that the best way for us to approach thinking through this text? Should I, as, as your pastor, be trying to scare you about the nightmares of trying to understand what's going on in Mark 13? Did Mark write in such a way that was just so impossible to understand that we can never have a hope and a prayer of knowing what he's trying to communicate? I think the answer to all of those questions is no, absolutely not. We, we, we should not be approaching this text as though like, oh no, how are we ever going to understand this? No, we, Mark has communicated truth and I believe that Mark is sufficiently clear to communicate his emphases. The more and more that I look at Mark 13 and, and understand what Mark is doing within this text, I am more and more convic- convinced that it really isn't as difficult as some would try to make it out to be. And I believe this text is clear enough for us to grasp what Mark wants us to know. Now, are there challenging portions to Mark 13? Yeah, <laughs> there are. There are some things that are challenging to work through and we have to think about, we have to wrestle with a little bit. But are they so challenging that it distorts the main point? And I have to say no, and not by a long shot. As I've studied, I think there are two primary factors that, that introduce difficulties to our study and to our text. First, too often we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking the wrong question. So often we approach a text like this, we want to know, how does this text fit into my theological grid? Eh, wrong question. Too often we approach a text and, we was, and we're not asking, what is Mark trying to communicate? But how can I use Mark to back up my already pre-existing positions? And it's just the wrong question. That's not the proper way that we approach Bible study. We don't want to ask the wrong questions. We want to ask the right questions. Sometimes we we get so focused on asking the questions of what's the chronology that we may miss what Mark is trying to do. So we so often we're asking the wrong questions. Second, too often we're trying to make Mark say whatever we think Matthew or Luke are saying. And that's I've already addressed that, so I don't want to belabor the point too much on that. And that's somewhat related to the asking the wrong questions thing as well, but but we're trying to import other texts on top of Mark to make it say what we think those other texts are saying. And so what you end up with is the vast majority of problems that we encounter when trying to interpret Mark, those so-called 
exegetical minefield that we are about to enter, enter into, it kind of vanishes when we start asking better questions and seeking Mark's intent and not Matthew's or Luke's. Someday we'll study Matthew and we'll see what Matthew has to say. Someday we'll study Luke and see Luke's emphasis. Let's focus on Mark. What does Mark want us to know? And when we do that, a lot of the outside noise that brings problems, it begins to dissipate. So here, I think maybe what might be the most single, most helpful thing for us to keep in mind as we study this text, and this, this relates to asking the right questions. Mark, in his emphasis, Mark is more interested in our practical response to the prophecy that is given here than he is about the details of the chronology. Mark is more interested in our practical response to the prophecy that is given here than he is in the details of the chronology. As we get into the book of Mark, and, and we are not going to import Matthew and Luke on top of Mark, but there are interesting points of comparison that help us see how Mark is distinct and help us see Mark's emphasis. And one of the things that we will discover is that Matthew and Luke both have several time indicators in the text that help us understand the chronology of what Jesus is unfolding. After these things, before that, then this occurred. Those kinds of terminology, that's going to be found in Matthew and in Luke. Mark does not have as much of that kind of language. There is some of it, but it is less pronounced and less a focal point of the flow than what you would find in Matthew or Luke. But what Mark does have are several commands. Be alert! Watch out! Pay attention! Don't be deceived! The imperatives in the text drive the flow, drive what Jesus is getting at within this text, drive what Mark is trying to emphasize through the Olivet Discourse. And so if we're coming into this text and we're asking questions about chronology, you are going to be disappointed. And the reason is because Mark is not as interested in the strict chronology as He is interested in your faithfulness as a follower of Jesus Christ. So we can spend all of our time synthesizing the data and trying to make, it, trying to ch make our charts and our timelines. And I just have to say, I'm pro-chart. <laughs> I'm pro-timeline. I'm pro-synthesizing data. Like, I, I love these things, and I, I, I've made plenty of charts in my time, and I will probably be making more as time goes on. But if that's our main focus, I think we run the risk of missing what Mark wants us to take home. We're going to miss his points. Because so often the biblical authors, when it comes to prophetic texts, they are, they are not always concerned with giving you a perfect prophetic calendar. Sometimes they, sometimes they are giving you a calendar. Like, like sometimes that's there. Sometimes, and we can see that, and when it's there, we embrace it. We don't ignore it. I'm not downplaying the calendar. 
But that's not always the main point. Sometimes they are more interested in shaping your character. Prophecy is often more about our character than it is a calendar. And when there is a calendar, often it's to help us understand things so that it will shape our character. And as much as I can tell, Mark seems to be one of those authors who just simply is more concerned about your character than he is the calendar. And so as we move through this text, again, we're going to see this over and over again. Be alert. Do not be deceived. Watch out. See to yourselves. And these instructions that are going to be there. Stay awake. Which is how he concludes the discourse. What I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. So we must be careful that we do not miss the instruction that is given while we're trying to fit everything into our timelines. I intended to begin walking through just a couple of verses here. I'm going to read I'm going to read Mark 13 and then conclude our time. I don't want us to walk away from here without spending some time in the Word. I, I, with the things that we've covered today, I believe are, were necessary and important and worth our time. So I don't apologize for that, even the technical nature of the things that we talked about. I don't apologize for any of that. But I don't want us to leave here today without at least having read through the text and then that we can meditate on this and we can take this and begin to walk through as in future weeks or over the course of the next five weeks, we will dive deeper into Mark chapter 13 and see more of what Mark is trying to communicate. But let's read Mark 13, beginning with verse 1. And as we do this, I encourage you to look for the imperatives, the commands, the, the watch outs, the be not deceives. Look for that in your Bible. And if you're the kind of person that highlights or circles or makes notes, it would be worth doing that even as we go. Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not, not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in, in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women and, and who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God has created until now and will never and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets, they will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the, four, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master, when the master of the house will come, in the evening in the, or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Over the next five weeks, we'll be working through this text section by section. We will go over the signs, or rather non-signs, of the end. We will talk about the meaning of the, of the abomination of desolation. We will consider the coming of the Son of Man, the lesson from the fig tree, and the lesson from the man on a journey. And we will notice as we move through this consistent charge to be alert. Be discerning. Be ready. Do not be deceived. And so more important than all of our, our timelines as we try to see where everything fits chronologically, more important than all of that is that we would live a people who are ready, watching and waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. The 
closing song we're about to sing is a song I plan to have us sing several times over the next few weeks. It's a newer song to us. We're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about things of the end and the end times and all that sort of thing. And we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ and, and what that means. And there's, there's an aspect of the return of Christ that should be a, a glorious thing, an exciting thing for those who are His people. And the song that we're going to sing celebrates the return of Christ, celebrates that day when we will see Him in all of His beauty, all of His glory, and we will proclaim and declare. We will hail the Lamb who was slain for the world. He will rule in power, and He will reign as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I pray that we will be awake and alert, watching and ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank You so much for our time together today. Lord, in many ways I wish that we could have just begun working through the text exegetically, expositionally. We look forward to doing that in the future weeks if you would tarry. If it is your will, Lord, we, these are the things that we will get to study. But Lord, it would, nothing would thrill our hearts more than to see you return today. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who live ready lives, even as we have read from that text, that conclusion, what Jesus says to his disciples. He says to all, be awake, be alert, be ready. May we live lives of readiness so that when we see our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ descending, we will rejoice. We will have been found without spots and blemish. And we will delight to see you in all of your glory. We continue to ask your wisdom, your guidance, and direction, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.